people definitely ask you to do things as a band that they want you to do. It's like the three people that comment on your Instagram, like, why aren't you playing Denver? <laughs> if we flew to Denver and played a show, like, it could be an awesome show, but what if it's just those three guys there? <laughs> your speakers up to 11 because it's time for too much effing perspective the podcast that asks musicians and entertainers to relive their most spinal tap moments when nothing goes right and everything gets kind of weird i'm your host alan keller a comedy writer in la and lead singer of the least heralded chicago band the falling walendas and i'm your co-host alex hoffman former tour manager for radiohead pj harvey and the chills and lead singer of the least heralded milwaukee band the vainglorious our guest today is Mac McCon, who not only fronts the great band Superchunk, also fronts one of the nation's most revered indie labels, Merge Records. We're going to talk to Mac about the time Superchunk had a gun pulled on them in Brazil, how their band name was inspired by the misspelling of their drummer's name in the Chapel Hill, North Carolina phone book, and the time Superchunk headlined for a seafood buffet. So without further ado, let's go to the TM. EP show! It really puts perspective on things, so it doesn't mean... Not too much. There's too much perspective now. Alex, in the year 2000 movie High Fidelity, starring John Cusack, my band, The Falling Walendas, had a huge poster prominently displayed in the record store. It's like in every single scene. Yeah, that was cool. I mean, talk about product placement. Well, I wish I was cognizant of it. I actually found out when I saw the review for the movie in the New York Times, and there's this <laughs> huge picture of Cusack, Tim Robbins, and Jack Black, and then my poster right in the center. Oh, that's awesome. I thought you'd shrewdly negotiated that. I think they went around negotiating with me because they've heard about my <laughs> tough negotiating skills. As you <laughs> learned from when I signed on to this podcast and I asked for yeah. top dollar. Yeah, top billing. Anyway, now if you haven't seen High Fidelity, I highly recommend it. John Cusack plays Rob Gordon, owner of the record store Championship Vinyl, who is one of those people obsessed with bands. The more esoteric, the better. And he geeks out on every single detail, like what label they were originally signed to, who produced them, or the B-sides, you know, all that crap. Do you know anyone like that, Alex? Mm, give me a second. Uh, you? Thank you, but I am not on that level. I don't have the attention span nor the mental bandwidth to store that much trivia. And to be honest, I still consider Beck a new act. But anyways, <laughs> if I do happen upon something new, like I did with the band BC Camplight during COVID quarantine, rather than encouraging me to search out more new music because this band yeah, basically changed a year of my life, I end up just listening to it nonstop until I get sick of it and then go back to my old standbys, Bowie and the Who. Well, at least you listen to something new on occasion. I mean, I feel like my internal jukebox got locked on Y2K. Of course, that was back when I was getting all kinds of free CDs and stuff from touring. That's sort of why uh, my collection's a time capsule. <laughs> well, it helps that I have a 20-year-old daughter who hips me to new bands. Yeah, well, forward her suggestions to me, will you? Actually, 
If you really want to hear the cutting edge music on today's indie scene, all you have to do is get a playlist of the roster of Merge Records, the record label our guest Mac McCon started in 1989. Yeah, that's a great suggestion, Alan. Mac, he started Merge out of his great love of music and a genuine desire to discover new bands and share them with the world. And, you know, I think we can say that his, he's got a pretty remarkable track record. Yes, he certainly does. Merge has broken some really important bands like Arcade Fire, Neutral Milk Hotel, and of course, there's his own band, Super Chunk. But let's be frank, he isn't perfect. He completely whiffed on my band, The Falling Lulendas, that sent Merge a demo <laughs> way back when and never heard back. Yeah. He missed out on that opportunity to have an album that went not platinum, not gold, but actually went aluminum foil, right? Uh <laughs> 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 but in any case, I'm sure from Max Effie perspective, he probably gets a lot of demos. Yeah, but not many from bands whose posters were in big major studio movies. Was your music in that movie? No, it wasn't. <laughs> Why not? I never even thought about that. I was just so tickled with the poster. <laughs> but you know, that poster was printed in Dublin. Oh, in Dublin. In Dublin, was Dublin. it? Well, <laughs> Well, great. Let's get to our chat with Mac, which is also in Dublin. But first, listeners, if you listen to Too Much Effing Perspective on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review, even a bad one. That at least lets us know that you're paying attention. Wait, so we'll wait, right wait, 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 wait a second, Alex. Leave a good review, okay? Don't let him encourage you to diss us. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back after a short break. And now, the co-founder of Merge Records that released Arcade Fire's Grammy Award-winning masterpiece, The Suburbs, Super Chunks, Mac McCon. Mac, so good to meet you. After all these years, I've caught up on all Super Chunk music over this last week and enjoyed it thoroughly. There's a lot of it out there. I didn't get to the Port of Static stuff, but I did go through the entire Super Chunk catalog again. And I got to say, the albums just keep getting better and better. Oh, good. But anyways, let's get to the first question. Your band name, the creation of it, was a Spinal Tap moment in and of itself. Can you explain that to us? Yes. Well, our band was originally named Chunk. And that derived from the fact that our drummer, whose name was Chuck Garrison, was listed in the phone book as Chunk Garrison. And so we just called our band Chunk because of that. Like, I don't even remember the decision. It was just like, we just became that. And we made one single with that name. And then we signed to Matador to do our first album. And Gerard, who runs Matador, said, look, you know, there's this band here in New York called Chunk. They're a percussion ensemble. They're like a knitting factory kind of band. So musically, we weren't really in the same circles. So we hoped that they would just let it slide, and they did not want to do that. So we had to change our name. Of course, we try to think of completely different names. That's impossible once you have one in your brain. And I think it was my mom that came up with just adding the superlative to the beginning of Chunk. And so that's how we became Super Chunk. So you were the originals, and then you became the new originals. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Dinosaur had already changed their name to Dinosaur Jr., so that was out of the question. Right. <laughs> so, Mac, you and I may have met back in 
92. I was the tour manager for the Chills on the Soft Bomb Tour. Oh, cool. We passed through Chapel Hill, played at the Cat's Cradle, and somebody from Super Chunk stopped by. That was definitely me. Cool. Because we shared a booking agent with the Chills, and so like I would have been able to say, hey, Bob Lawton books us both, you know, and we were already friends with some other bands from New Zealand at that point, the Bats. and Right. But we had some tenuous connections, you know what I mean? And we were just really big fans of the Chills. Since you mentioned the Bats, I got to do a slight rabbit hole story. So two or three tours after the Chills, I tour managed Radiohead on Pablo Honey. And we were doing a show co-headlined with Belly, Tanya Donnelly's band, and the Bats were opening. I think it was in a weird old armory in the D.C. area. And of course... Being Kiwi, they pronounced their name the Bates. We're the Bates. The Bates. <laughs> that old armory, it was a funky place that had like pigeons in the rafters. And I remember the guitar player from the Bats was freaking out because he said a pigeon shat on his guitar and it was starting to eat the finish <laughs> off <laughs> before he had a chance to get to it and <laughs> clean it. So it's just like a the complete spinal tap moment in dignity of forces of nature beyond your control, destroying your instruments. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I think about that a lot actually, because we still work with some New Zealand artists on Merge. And when those bands first started coming over to tour, we were so excited about seeing anyone flying none adjacent at all, you know? And then of course they were also great when you did get to see them, but it just was like a very special thing. And I've always wondered what it was like for them you know, having been to New Zealand now a few times and knowing what a small place that is, just the idea of getting on a plane and then just driving across this country has just got to be such a crazy experience. Well, I think it was also in that particular situation, I mean, Martin Phillips, there was a lot of respect for him and his songwriting and he'd done Submarine Bells. The prior album was critically acclaimed and all that. I think there was a lot of high hopes and he had a band of hired guns backing him up. And it was a van tour. It was a real slog. And of course, huge distances we had to cover, not really being able to sleep at night in the manner of a bus tour, you know, and cover the miles. So pretty exhausting. I'll share one story. We played in Richmond at the club, The Flood Zone. Yeah. I don't even know if it still exists. But anyway, ticket sales were kind of light. And as a tour manager, I was hoping to try and do something to help bring some additional people in the door. And the word came around that R.E.M. was in town for someone's wedding or something like that. And Peter Buck was a fan of the band. So they were potentially going to stop by. And someone said to me from the club, said, oh, you know, R.E.M. may come. Could we announce it on the radio? And maybe that brings some more people in. I thought, sure. Sounds like a great idea. I see you shaking your head just for our listeners. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> anyway, so it got announced on the local radio station. Yeah, come on down, see the chills. R.E.M. may be here. Well, of course, R.E.M. heard that. <laughs> So they didn't show up. And so Martin Phillips afterwards, not knowing that I'd done that, oh said, gosh. oh, some idiot announced it on the radio. And I was like, oh, boy, that was really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you got to do what you got to do. You know what I mean? Any trick in the book. How are your early tours? Were you getting crowds? How would you face a half full or half empty show? I mean, half is great. If you're getting <laughs> half at that point, you're just like, this is amazing. 
you know, well, our first tour was not the summer we started, which was 89, but the next summer, summer of 90, we teamed up with a band called Seaweed, who are from the Pacific Northwest, and a band called Geek, who are from Washington, D.C. And Jenny and Kristen, who were in the band Geek, they ran Simple Machines Records. And Seaweed hadn't signed a Sub Pop yet, and they were on a label from Tacoma called Leopard Gecko Records. And we decided to do this three-band bill in the Midwest and the East Coast and the South. And we put out a seven inch to like commemorate the tour with one song by each band on it. We had two singles out at the time. Geek maybe had one, but it was really just like three unknown bands doing this tour. And, you know, we were just booking it based on phone numbers that we had gotten from fanzines or magazines or just like mutual friends and other bands who had already played in these certain towns or whatever. And so, I mean, it's amazing to think of now, like I said, like half full is great. And for us, like the fact that we could get as far away from North Carolina as Minneapolis and still have, I don't know, 50 people come see these three bands, none of whom they'd ever really heard of before, like was an amazing thing, you know? And our first show of the tour was at a club in Asheville called Vincent's Ear. <laughs> and there was no one there. I mean, luckily, when you're touring with two other bands, plus a couple of friends and girlfriends or whatever, like there's a built in crowd. So, like, when you're playing, there's at least the other 10 people that are on tour with you, you know. But we get to this place. It's one of those things where you show up and you're like, yeah, they kind of forgot this show was happening. <laughs> And the roof was leaking onto the stage. No one showed up. It was just, oh my God, like, is the whole tour going to be like this? But that was the worst show of the tour, luckily. So everything got better from there. And like I said, it was small crowds everywhere, of course, because no one knew who we were. But by the time like we got to Boston, because there's college radio stations there were playing our singles, there was crowds at those shows. So it was really fun. and. Geek actually had like a pickup truck, but then they had the thing over the back and like people would ride in the bed of the pickup truck underneath that right. cover. And at one point during the tour, somewhere between, I guess, Chicago and Flint, the back thing of the <laughs> truck fell open and guitars fell out of the oh, no. side of the highway. And they didn't realize this for like an hour <laughs> until they stopped to get gas or something. So they turned around and went back and they found the guitars on the side of the highway. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wow. So like that kind of thing was happening. And when we played in Flint, there's an old theater there. It's probably been renovated by now, but at the time the theater itself was in complete disrepair, but these kids would put on punk shows in the lobby. And huh. there's a picture on the back of one of our singles of us standing on the roof of this theater. But the shows happened in the lobby. It was like an all ages show. And then the promoter's like, if you need a place to stay, you can just stay in the theater. So we're slept in this haunted theater <laughs> after the show. And it was amazing. It was so great. I remember my band, The Falling Will End, is we had a gig in Minneapolis and it was at First Avenue. Or no, what's the 7th Street? 7th Street was, Entry. Yeah, 7th Street Entry. And it was the coldest day in history. And at the last second... 
we decided the band guys are going to fly and blow our budget, obviously, and lose a ton of money. And then we had our sound guy, Steve Coker, drive from Chicago to Minneapolis in really Timothy McVeigh wouldn't have used this van. The only window was the windshield. There was nothing else. And he drove all our equipment. I can't believe he made it. And we had a gig in front of nobody. We played the best show we ever did. It just felt really great. And then we flew back and Steve, who ended up dying in a car accident years later, which oh, doesn't no. surprise me, he obviously took on any job that had driving in it. But the humble beginnings, right? I mean, these things that if someone asked you to do them now, you'd be like, you're crazy. That sounds like a nightmare. At the time, we were just so excited to be playing shows and meeting people, seeing other bands and that kind of thing. It's fun to hear you say that. Literally, I'm sort of having a visceral reaction, which will translate really well over a podcast, that it's like it was so exciting. My very first tour was actually in a bus. I was with the Bodines from Milwaukee. They were on their fourth Warner Brothers record. And my Bible of touring was the Led Zeppelin Hammer of the Gods book that had been written by their tour manager. And the fact that the hotel we stayed in in Seattle was- Oh, on the harbor. Yeah, it's on the pier. But then also- the Hyatt on Sunset, the legendary Riot House, just being in these incredible places and these great venues. And it was thrilling, right? And then my second tour was a van tour. You know, I hadn't seen the United States the way that we were seeing it. The band that I was with called Balloon from the UK, they literally said to me, we want to see the B roads, right? We want to get off the main highways whenever possible and really see what's happening. It felt once in a lifetime. And you end up seeing more of it on a van tour, even though it's such a grind for those wide open spaces, but because the bus goes at night, it's just a different thing. You know what I mean? You're not driving through the Badlands in the middle of the day. You're driving through the Badlands in the middle of the night. You don't see it. Right. Then when you get to whatever town you're in, you don't have a car. So if you want to go to the record store, which is normally what we'd be doing, or go find a good place to eat, you're kind of like on foot and trapped wherever the bus is. Right. Well, sorry, you're still touring in vans? Yeah. Depending on where we are and what kind of tour it is, like we'll sometimes have two vans, like a cargo van and then a passenger van. It's only recently that really you started to be able to rent the kind of vans that they have had in Europe for a long time, those splitters where there is a big cargo space in the back that's walled off. We always owned our van and built a loft in the back and then put all the gear under the loft and then people could quite dangerously just sleep in the loft. <laughs> Dangerously. Yes. Yes, indeed. You could be sleeping peacefully up there and then someone slams on the brakes and then you just like <laughs> end up between the two front seats of the van. You know what I mean? Like you're probably in a sleeping bag. So you're in this slippery thing on a flat loft and then you just go flying. Well, that's amazing and awesome that you're still doing that. Touring in a van when I was 24, 25 and doing it now, they're completely different thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what it means for us now is that we never play Denver. Like we never play <laughs> Lawrence, Kansas. You know, like we do tour that's like in the Midwest and the East Coast where none of the drives are longer than seven hours or something like that. And even that is kind of a long day just because that part is not fun or novel anymore. The eight hour drive, the 10 hour drive, and then get there and play a show or whatever. That's not really in our wish list these days. So We'll fly to the West Coast and do the West Coast or do the Northwest and then fly to San Francisco and do California, like that kind of thing. So 
I think we've just adapted like a lot of people do and to just do stuff that's still enjoyable to us. Why do something that's just going to burn you out and make you hate it? Mac, in This Is Spinal Tap, Polymer record head Sir Dennis Eaton Hogg pulls the plug on the band's offensive cover for Smell the Glove. As a label head yourself, have you ever had to quash a creative decision of one of your bands? I'm trying to think of the closest scenario that we've had at Merge. For the most part, because of the kind of label we are and that we are in a band, we attract artists that are like-minded and we tend to not work with people who want to be rock stars necessarily. They want to sell records. They want to be popular. Of course, they want as many people as possible to hear their music. But, you know, we don't have to deal too much with the kind of extremes of what I imagine you have to deal with if you work for Sony Music or Major Label or something like Polymer that. Polymer Records. <laughs> Polymer Records. I mean, one of my favorite things which really resonates as a band also is when they set up the in-store and no one's at the in-store appearance. Because people definitely ask you to do things as a band that they want you to do. It's like the three people that comment on your Instagram, like, why aren't you playing Denver? <laughs> if we flew to Denver and played a show, like, it could be an awesome show, but what if it's just those three guys there? <laughs> you know, it's like the person who works at the record store, it's like, I really want to set up an in-store. And then you get there and it's really just because, like, there was this fan who really wanted you to come to his record store and didn't tell anyone else <laughs> that you were going to be there. <laughs> I feel like we work in a part of the music business that's, for the most part, insulated from the kind of slimy part of the music business. But when I think about This Is Spinal Tap, I feel like there's still moments, even though they're obviously exaggerated, to be as hilarious as possible, that really do resonate. I mean, that in-store, or even the Spinal Tap and Puppet Show marquee, we played Virginia Beach, I think maybe more than once, which is like a weird place to play, but it's not too far from here. You know what I mean? So like we, we would get booked there. We played a place called the Peppermint Beach Club. And this gig is like infamous for several reasons. But the best reason is that when we showed up, the marquee said Super Chunk and then underneath it, Seafood Buffet. <laughs> That's not another band. <laughs> it's not another band. I love Seafood Buffet. That's not like a band out of Athens. I think it might have also said Jimmy Cliff. There's a picture of it online that you can find. That is unbelievable. And the other thing that happened at that show, it was us and a band called Erectus Monotone from Raleigh. That we put out some records of theirs on Merge. And unbeknownst to us, I mean, unannounced to us, in between bands, cool cigarettes did like a promotional event where these women got on stage wearing cool t-shirts and they're throwing out cool branded like tube socks into the audience and the audience was not big and they then said okay we're gonna have a contest ladies whoever wants to win i don't know what they were gonna win maybe you'd win a carton of cigarettes or something like that. <laughs> and the contest was who can take off their bra the fastest under their shirt. Oh no. 
And like, this is all going on between bands. But that's an Olympic event now. <laughs> right. We were just horrified, almost as horrified as when the guy who was paying us at the end of the night put a gun on the desk, almost to be like, don't bother checking my count. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, this is what you're getting paid. <laughs> oh, wow. Could have been a cricket bat. Virginia Beach. I can't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can be a life-threatening undertaking. Now you're sort of bringing up uh, visceral reactions in another way, because I was also, in addition to being the tour manager, I was a tour accountant, so I had to collect the money. And I remember dealing with some guy in Indiana. It was in South Bend, and we were playing a crusty old theater there where the volume of the PA system was like bringing plaster down from the ceiling, and the solution was turn it down. But the guy that I was settling with was wearing a Jimmy Hoffa jacket. It looked like he was a Teamster boss. It was a little intimidating. That's unsettling. <laughs> the only other place we saw a gun at settlement time was in Brazil. We played this metal club in this little town in Brazil. I say little, I mean, it's little compared to like the big towns in Brazil, which was like billions of people. But the entire stage was made up of like the kind of grid when you're walking on the sidewalk in New York and there's like the narrow little right. thing over the subway that you walk over, like the whole stage was made of that. Very strange. Ooh. And um, of course, I couldn't understand any of the conversation because it was in Portuguese, but it was between our tour manager, our Brazilian tour manager and Marcos and the guy running the club. The guy just, before he does anything at settlement, he just opens a drawer, takes a gun out and puts it on the desk. I'm like... Is that necessary? Like, do we look like the kind of band that's going <laughs> to threaten you or something? Um, but Marcos was very cool about it. And later we just had to ask him, like, what were you guys saying? It was just basically that same thing. Like, don't question my count at the door. Let's talk about Merge Records some more because you've curated quite a roster of incredible bands over the years. I mean, Arcade Fire becomes a multi-million selling band and you put out their first record, right? Yeah. The first time we played in Canada, so this is probably 1991, we opened for Mudhoney in Montreal at a place called Fufun Electrique, which I think translates into the electric asshole. <laughs> and this guy Howard Billerman, I guess, came and talked to us at the merch table at that show. And then the next time we played there headlining, he came and we hung out a little bit. He showed us around town. And so we became friends with this guy Howard and would see him over the years. So cut to 2003 or whatever. Howard sends us a CDR of this band and he said, oh, here's this band. Like I'm playing drums for them. And I recorded the record because he's also an engineer. I'm just a drummer. Like, if you don't like it, don't feel any pressure. My feelings won't be hurt. It's not really my band or whatever, but I thought you might be into it. And then the first CDR he sent, like, didn't work. Or, like, it was a DVD or something weird. And then it's like, oh, Howard, can you, like, send another copy? So, like, he sent another one. So, eventually, we get around to listening to this thing, and it's, like, five songs from first album. And we're like, wow, this is great. So, we end up working with Arcade Fire. Yeah, we put out the first three records on Merge. And the third one won the Grammy, The Suburbs. It's a great album. Yeah, it was amazing. 
you know, all three of those records are great, but Funeral, the first one is really kind of what took people by surprise to the point where by the time the record came out, people have been hearing about how great they were live and stuff and listening to the songs and getting into the record. So, you know, of course, the first tour is booked before the record is out. So then by the time they get on tour, the shows are crazy because now they're just selling out all these shows on really their first tour of North America. It just kind of blew up. I mean, there wasn't really any other way to describe it. And they weren't disappointing. I mean, that's the thing. It's like you hear about this band, you hear the record, you love the record. And then when you go see them, they're like even better than the record. That doesn't always happen, you know. So that was a pretty exciting time. That's really neat. I'll just interject that when I toured with Radiohead, Creep was a big hit. We had that similar experience, right? They right. were they're playing clubs and there was a ton of energy and a lot of excitement from the crowd. They're modest guys and they were just thrilled and sort of taken aback by what was happening to them. Yeah, that's pretty fun to be around when that kind of thing is happening. You're a founder, co-founder of a band, co-founder of a record company that has real longevity. From a business standpoint of a founder, can you share sort of one surprising, unexpected learning or insight about the business of show business or managing your own career that really has stood out for you over time? The thing that's always kind of determined a lot of the decisions that we make and the things that we do is that we started the band and the label as fans of other bands and other labels, K or Sub Pop or Amphetamine Reptile or Touch and Go or whatever, Discord, inspired by the aesthetics of those labels and the way that they did things. And they each had like a character to them and inspired by the bands that we loved to the point where what was guiding us was wanting to make things that made other people as excited about what we were doing as we were excited about these things that we grew up with, you know. And I feel like that's a good place to start. And the other thing I would say is that we started the label and the band not as a way to have it be our job. Now, it became our job. You know, the band became our job before the label did in terms of actually paying ourselves. But we started it more just because we wanted to do it. And so it was like a, a hobby or an art project or something like that. And then it grew into this thing. And I think that that way of setting your expectations or doing things in a way so that your main thing is that you want to make something really cool and have fun doing it and maybe work with people that you respect or that inspire you or, or that are just your friends or whatever. If your baseline expectations are like, well, let's try to do that as opposed to let's try to get famous or let's try to have this be our job or let's try to make money. I think that that sets you up to not be disappointed because even if in the end all you did was play some shows and make a record with your friends, like that's still a, a cool thing to have happened. Even if you realize at a certain point, like this isn't for me for the rest of my life, or like I am going to do this for the rest of my life, but it's not going to be my career like that. You know, there's so many different ways you can go about it. But I think that basically being realistic about things from the get-go is helpful. That's great. You had the reverse situation where the band supported the label, right? Yeah, because the band was making money on tour when the label was still just putting out 
seven inch singles and tapes. And then even once we started putting out full length albums, we didn't have like a lot of artists on the label. And one of them was us and we were the biggest selling artist for a bit. So in order to have the label and go on tour and do what Super Chunk was doing, if we were making any money, we were using it to pay people to run the label on a day-to-day basis because we were on tour for half the year. You know what I mean? It was more important to keep growing the label to be able to take care of the other bands that we were working with, Magnetic Fields, who we started working with early on, Lamb Chop, a couple of New Zealand bands, 3Ds. We put out a full length by them. Yeah, it was kind of, we had to prioritize how we were using whatever income the label had, and it kind of went to growing the label as opposed to paying us. The only other band I can think of doing that is uh, the Beatles and Apple Records, right? A lot of people have made that comparison. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Spinal Tap's journey is nothing if not humbling. Band once was on top and is now opening for puppet shows, as we said. What was the most humbling moment of your career and how did you overcome it? There's so many moments, like every time you go on tour, there's bound to be several super humbling moments. Our guitar player, Jim Wilbur, has a saying, and I don't think he came up with it. He says, you know, you play the show, not the crowd. And so it's like 10 people, 500 people, 1,000 people, you got to play the show. You're not playing the crowd. And last time we toured in Europe, we played a kind of a humbling show in uh, Copenhagen in a squat basically it's in christiania which is kind of like the lawless part of the city there i was just there a couple years ago it is lawless scary yeah and well it's wild if you walk around there at night the bonfires and everything but um the club itself it's like a rock club it just seems like a club we had played there several times before but on this night there was a hurricane in copenhagen Hmm. and like the mayor shut down all the bridges into the city because of the hurricane but we were already there and we're like well we can certainly drive to the club. We're not going to cancel. Like we're here, you know what I mean? But of course the crowd was small. So that was one of those nights where some people are bummed that we're playing and there's no one there and there's a hurricane outside. It's like, what are we doing here? But my thing is always like, yeah, but like the 12 people that came out in a hurricane to see you, they don't deserve your shitty show. They deserve like the best show. Right. Yeah. So it's always... Those times when you kind of feel like, oh, what are we doing? But the people who came to see you were like, they're your biggest fans. So like, you can't phone it in. Totally. To your point, that is an ultra special experience for those 12 people, right? Who thought they were going to be packed in a room and in a scary part of town watching their favorite band. Yeah. And as a fan, you have that conversation later with your friends. Like, (laughs) we saw that band and there was a hurricane and like, we're the only people there. Yeah. Kyle, who works the bread counter at our supermarket here in Portland, Oregon, is a huge Super Chunk fan. My wife talks music with the guy. You're the only band he's ever brought up to her. Oh, wow. Right? So as I'm having him slice the olive bread next time, I can't wait to tell him we had this conversation. Tell him I said hi. (laughs) I will. I do want to ask you, you have worked with the number of extraordinarily talented and eccentric artists, and one that pops is, of course, Robert Pollard from Guided by Voices right? And you worked with him on Go Back Snowball. And Guided by Voices is legendary for doing like 50 songs in a two-hour set. Any Spinal Tap moments you can share working with Robert? Yeah. So the first time we played with Guided by Voices was was around the time of Propeller, I think. 
and maybe they had just signed to Matador or something. Early on, we played with them at the Exit Inn in Nashville. They were incredible, of course. And I guess it must have been not that much longer after this, maybe a couple of years later, we were playing a show with them in State College, Pennsylvania. And it was on Halloween. It happens to be our drummer, John's birthday. And it's also Bob Pollard's birthday. Huh. And so they were playing first. But, you know, because, of course, we had already sound checked and our amps and everything were already set up on stage or whatever. And then GBV goes on. And in my memory, it was like literally the first song or like the first note of their set. Pollard does like a high kick and then falls backwards into my amp. And the whole thing just crashes to the ground. The speaker cable breaks off in the back of the speaker. Just like the very first note of the set. So by the time we went on, our roadie DeWitt had repaired what needed to be repaired in order for us to play. And we played the show and it was a really fun show. But yeah, that was something I remember from one of the first times we played with them. I want to ask you about a couple of clubs where we've both been and just kind of get you to, to tell a story if there is one. So have you played the whiskey on Sunset? Yes, we played the whiskey on our first trip to Los Angeles and we were driving across the country. First time we'd kind of been west of the Mississippi or whatever. And it's the day before we're playing the whiskey and it was just a drive day and we're in the desert near Indio, California, and our van breaks down. <laughs> and been there done that literally the middle of nowhere we get a tow supposedly the closest repair place and and when he's towing us we're riding in the van itself on the back of the tow truck i think and he just pulls into this orange grove and he's just like driving deep into this orange grove and we're like is this just where they murder people in india was out here in the middle of this <laughs> orange grove and that's where the repair place was in the middle of this orange grove we stayed in the hotel a motel that night in indio again just kind of going like will our van even be there when we take a cab back to the orange grove in the morning like who knows what's going on and i remember calling our booking agent bob and he's like we'd only learned a couple of days before that we were going to be opening for sonic youth because oh, we cool. are, we had our own show booked at a place called the gaslight which is a much smaller club but on the way out there he goes by the way because he booked Sonic Youth also. He's like, got you on the Sonic Youth show at the Whiskey. We're like, oh my God. So now it's the day before and we're in India, broken down. And I go, well, Bob, like, you know, guy says he can fix it. We're going to try to get there in time for the show. He's like, you're going to get there in time for the show. That was like his response. <laughs> Damn straight. Even if you have to take a taxi from India, basically, to Los Angeles, like you're going right. to do the show. So the guy did fix our van and we made it to the show. And that was... I mean, that was amazing to be able to have that be our first time in LA. That's a great story. My quick story is that Radiohead played the whiskey on the Pablo Honey tour. The next day, they were doing the Arsenio Hall show. So, Tom, when he got the word that they had to keep creep within three minutes, 30 seconds or whatever, he wasn't psyched about that. They have to be kind of work within a time frame. And then we show up on Arsenio Hall, and the guests that day were like a snapshot of the early 90s. It was Dennis Miller. His sidekick there was 
not on stage, but just accompanying him was Chris Farley, oh my who gosh. I actually knew from Madison, Wisconsin. Anna Nicole Smith was the other guest. Radiohead was the musical guest. And then kicking around backstage for reasons completely unknown was RuPaul. Wow. And look who's standing strong now, RuPaul. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Who still has a career? RuPaul. <laughs> yes. Legendary. Uh, and to bring it back to Super Chunk, our bass player, Laura Balance, knew RuPaul in high school. She went to high school in Atlanta. Oh, you're um, kidding. And knew RuPaul then. Oh, is that crazy? Crazy. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. So where can our listeners learn more about Super Chunk, what you have going on? The best place is MergeRecords.com. You can find our records to buy and our tour dates and all that, and plus all the other bands on Merge. So that's what I recommend. Mac, this has been fantastic. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Bye, Mac. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks, y'all. Thank you for tuning in to our Spinal Tap Moment Swap Meet with Mac. And many thanks to Alan's good friend, Rabbi Andy Bachman, for helping us to make the connection. If you're new to Too Much Effing Perspective and want to hear more Spinal Tap Moment stories, check out our other episodes with Butch Big from Garbage, Corin Tucker and Carrie Brownstein from Slater Kinney, comedian David Cross, Drive-By Truckers, Old Crow Medicine Show, Zia McKay from the Dandy Warhols, and many others. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Our editor is Gretchen Kilby. Our music composer is J.K. Harrison. If you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also join our mailing list on our website, that's tmepshow.com, and follow our socials on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at tmepshow. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions.